Good afternoon. Welcome to the Spaces and Places podcast by Site1001. I'm Lauren Long, Director of Marketing at Site1001, and today we're throwing you a bit of a curveball. Normally, we talk to people who are experts about buildings and certain aspects about them, but this time we're talking to Tom Kellerman, a go-to on cybersecurity issues and a member of the CNBC Technology Executive Council. But before we get started with Tom, I have to say hello to Aaron, the fabulous co-host from Southern California and Site1001's Director of Digital Design. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? Going good. How are you doing? Doing fantastic here in Southern California. But as you were saying, Tom Kellerman is our guest today. Tom is the Chief Cybersecurity Officer at Carbon Black a software company that specializes in cloud endpoint protection. And before that, Tom held the same position at a little company called Trend Micro and served as commissioner for the Commission on Cybersecurity for the 44th presidency and was an advisor to the International Cybersecurity Protection Alliance. Tom's a cybercrime professor and author, often in the news advising numerous organizations, markets, and just the general public about cybersecurity and safety. Phew, quite a resume. And Tom, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And of course, how about we start with you telling us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into this whole cybersecurity thing? Sure, I'll be brief. I'm a reformed hacker at a college professor that turned me to the light. And uh, my first job was with the World Bank Treasury Security Team, looking at the weaknesses of central bank security and payment system security. But I know what I don't know. And I know that in general, cybersecurity professionals, otherwise known as white hats, are losing a war because we're, we're facing essentially an, an insurgency in American cyberspace. Well, that, that's a good way to start us off. When we first started to catch up after you know, working together years ago, I mentioned that buildings are becoming more and more tech connected from automation capabilities to smart appliances and IoT sensors. And these smart buildings, which everyone's talking about, are all about connection and not only internally connected, but through the cloud, through mobile devices, and even plugged into city system platforms. So at what step in making a building smart do you think that people should start thinking about cybersecurity? And maybe answer that from both your black hat and your white hat days. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, actually, we just at Carbon Black, we just produced a study on bank security where we surveyed our hundreds of bank customers around the world. And they actually stated to us that 28% of the time, they were targeted through the OT infrastructure of their buildings. So the hackers weren't just leveraging spear phishing that we all hear about as nauseum. They were targeting the OT and IoT associated with the facilities of those financial institutions to then jump into the network and hack those institutions. So that fact alone leads me to state the following. It should be in the design phase, but typically it's not. In general, there's a governance challenge that you face within corporations where you have a head of facility security who is autonomous from the chief information security officer and does not need to listen to that individual. And because of that, and because of the use of CTOs and CIOs to create that uh, environment of the future, the digital environment of the future that is in these smart buildings and smart cities, you have this exposure, this greater attack surface to hacking as a whole. And I think it's an imperative that before new technologies are rolled out into existing buildings and or cities, that they be vetted by the chief information security officer 
and the cybersecurity team. I feel like a lot of the time when new technology is brought into buildings, it's installed and then security is an afterthought especially when it's more consumer facing, like a smart fridge that's you know connected to the Wi-Fi all of a sudden and people are Bluetooth connecting to it to send in photos or what have you. And you're saying that's not the best way to do that. Well, I'm saying that we should at least start with the physical security of that building. Every building has physical security, right? You have access controls on doorways. You've got motion sensors. Uh, you have alarm systems. And, and because of those things being connected directly to the primary network, you have an exposure right there for someone to actually hack their way into the building in a physical construct, as in unlock the doors, turn off the alarms, Mission Impossible style, <laughs> but also in a cyber construct. And as evidenced by the financial institutions, they were dealing with hackers that were going after the CCTV systems and the access control systems and the uh, temperature regulation systems within those buildings so they could piggyback into the computers that contained uh, the capacity to move monies. So we, can, we have a lot to learn from the banks as it relates to some of the oversights that have been made vis-a-vis -vis the nexus between physical security and cybersecurity. Huh, so you mentioned an insurgency. which is the greater wing, I guess, of that insurgency, the, the physical security or, or the actual, you know, the OT stuff? Well, when I mention insurgency, there's an insurgency in the sense that there are guilds of thieves, cyber criminal syndicates, and cyber militias that are Russian and Chinese that have colonized wide swaths of American IT infrastructure and have a point of persistence on those networks where they can become omniscient and or telepathic in those environments, both in a virtual sense and a physical sense. Huh. But to your point and to your question, it really depends on the corporation. Even if the corporation that owns the building or that leases the building doesn't see themselves as uh, someone that would be targeted by nation states or criminal groups, they need to understand that their recent press release vis-a-vis -vis the latest partnership or latest customer that they've acquired could very well lead them to become a point in which they are island hopped. What I mean by that is they're targeted to use the trust between them and the company that they're partnered with and or the company they're providing services to, to jump into those, those ecosystems and those environments. It's called island hopping. And so I think it's an imperative in the beginning right now that heads of physical security speak with CISOs about some basic tenants and basic next steps they can take to insulate themselves from this type of attack, this hybrid attack, this blended attack that could result in very serious consequences, both from an operational risk perspective, reputational risk perspective, but most importantly, in the future, a safety perspective. Wow. This is all incredibly fascinating and uh, a little terrifying, actually, to hear all this. Well, if you look at what just happened in Texas, I mean, you had uh, dozens of municipalities in Texas literally shut down from traffic lights mm -hmm. uh, to electrical distribution to police uh, processing, et cetera, et cetera, because of a coordinated ransomware attack on that infrastructure because of the lack of foresight to insulate themselves from ransomware attacks. You know, ransomware attacks can be stopped very quickly and very easily. If you move away from traditional antivirus and you move to next-gen antivirus, um, but ransomware attacks is just the bottom of the food chain when it comes to the more elite and sophisticated attacks that exist out there. And as we move to smart cities, as you're describing, we need to appreciate that the safety systems to ensure uh, life and life support can be and will be manipulated by adversaries, whether they be criminal groups, terrorist groups, or nation-state groups. And, and what I've seen over the last 22 years is, is a dramatic increase of hostility and punitive nature 
of the cybercrime and cyber terrorist community. I think in large part, that's not just due to geopolitical tension. It's due to the fact that prosecution rates for cyber criminals is still less than 3%. Do you think that they're testing out their boundaries and trying to get more financial gain or really do like terrorism, like strike fear in people who think they're safe or unaffected? I think it begins with financial gain, but as you can see with numerous terrorist groups, whether they be you know, ISIS or Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula, or whether it be Hezbollah, etc., uh, whether it even be North Korea and how they've offset economic sanctions through cyber attacks against financial institutions, you're seeing the adoption of cyber capabilities by all non-state actor groups. Even El Chapo had a head of IT that was hacking his competitors and his girlfriend's devices. And that's actually where the evidence came from to put him behind bars. <laughs> if you look at Interpol's stats, it shows that street crime globally is down 10%. Does that mean more people are going to church? I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's because more criminals are adopting technology to essentially hunt those of us who believe that the internet and cyberspace is a Pacific environment. So bringing it back to buildings, mm -hmm. as buildings become more connected, do you think they're actually more trouble than they're worth? Not if done properly. And, and what I mean by properly is, you know, the number one thing they have to do is, is assess the vulnerabilities of the technologies they're deploying before they're deployed. The second thing they have to do is they have to segregate those systems from the primary network and observe all anomalous behaviors on those systems by deploying something called EDR, Endpoint Detection and Response. Think of it like a CCTV for all the data and all of the behaviors that occur on computers. And that allows you to look for an anomalous behaviors and then suppress them in real time. Beyond that, I think they should have just-in-time administration. Not everyone should have the, the skeleton key or the, the concierge keys to the entire facility, and they shouldn't have that kind of access from a technological perspective either. That's not just a question of having limited system administrators and limited admins. It's a question of literally, what do you need administrative rights for, for how long, and when? And then after you're done, you should no longer have those administrative or and or God keys. That's an imperative as well. I think that correlates really well with the concept of a lot of automation. As buildings are getting smarter and systems are talking more to each other automatically, there's less need for people to be involved in the processes. But I think what you're saying is that we still need to have a system of checks and balances. We can't let the machines automatically run buildings. There still needs to be someone who's overseeing it and recognizing irregularities that otherwise AI or like machine learning would miss. Is that right? It is. And, and, and a great way to do that is just from the governance perspective, like I suggested. If you don't have a chief information security officer uh, go hire one and have that person be equal to the head of physical security or facility security and have them be directly reporting to the CEO so they get that defensive perspective as to the threats that I'm describing today. How do you feel about deep fake videos and fake news? <laughs> They're in the realm of cybersecurity? Yep. It, it's very much a huge concern. And as illustrated at the um, Black, Black Hat and DEF CON conferences in Vegas this summer, Facial recognition systems can be tricked out by wearing a specific type of sunglasses and a specific type of hat um, and or by wearing a specific type of shirt with reflective properties. But deepfake videos are very much part and parcel to tradecraft from Russia, and they're now being adopted by political campaigns 
I, when I say Russia, this is not a political conversation. I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole. Cybersecurity and disinformation campaigns are not partisan issues. These are patriotic imperatives that we need to tackle as citizens of the U.S. So it's very concerning. Disinformation and used to be called propaganda. It's evolved and it's something we should be very concerned with. When you use facial recognition systems, though, you should always have the capacity to do a live scan in terms of um, verify that, that the person has to issue challenge responses beyond just the biometric, that is the face print, to the system. So adding a password, asking a question that they must answer, making them do a specific gesture with their face or their hand to their face during that authentication process before they're granted access are great ways to inhibit and marginalize the capacity of adversaries to manipulate those systems. So we need to have a secret handshake in order to get into buildings now. Well, for example, if it's going to be a facial recognition system that's going to let me into a building, it should it should insist that I not wear a hat, that I not wear shades. It should insist that maybe I do a hand gesture where I touch my nose uh, or I touch my eyebrow. And that changes every day or every week. That way they can um, weed out some of the um, attempts to bypass the system security control. That's really interesting. And it also makes me wonder how new sensors that would be adopted into a building's network would be able to prove that they are who they say they are on like a weekly basis. And it's definitely interesting as sensors continue to change and measure different things, how that's going to be possible to authenticate that it's real. Mm -hmm. Also, something I read about recently, hackers got into the brain of a house and changed the rules of the house so that doors unlocked, not only when someone passed by with a keyless entry fob, but also whenever the security cameras saw motion in the backyard. So it was practically unlocking the doors for malicious people to come in. And you know that's a very big risk when all these other buildings are upgrading their security cameras and their security systems. Like you said, you know, it really needs to be a, a marriage between the physical and the cybersecurity aspects of the building. So what, what other teams do you think need to be involved in that? Like when it's not from the design phase, when it's integrated into an existing building, who do you think are the best people to get involved? If you're not a publicly traded company that has a, a cyber hunt team, you should outsource and hire a myriad of professional service providers to conduct a quarterly red team that includes a cyber hunt in the environment. The difference between a cyber hunt per se and an incident response is that hunters are looking for anomalous behaviors within the infrastructure that could uh, make it vulnerable um, in real time versus an incident response where essentially the alarms are going off and you're responding to an event. There are a number of firms across the East Coast that provide great services in this regard. To name a few, from big to small, you've got SecureWorks, you've got Optiv, from boutique firms like Red Canary to Nisos, etc., there's just a lot of room for more proactive scrimmaging of those defenses that can provide you with roadmaps on how to insulate the environment from those type of hybrid threats. Tom, before we go, what is the best way to make sure that we are being as secure as possible with all of our technologies at home in our private and personal lives? Great question. And I get it a lot because otherwise I sound like chicken little. So here you go. First, change your router's password. And take the sticker off the box that has the password on it, change it to a sentence, and change all your passwords across your life into sentences with punctuation. 
every Tuesday night, Silicon Valley pushes out critical updates. They are more critical than anything you're doing at that time. Those are steel plates that go across holes in your software that allow hackers to climb through. You should update all your applications and all your operating systems, everything from your TV to your fridge, <laughs> to your phone, to your laptop, uh, every Tuesday night. Just like you do laundry one night a week, that's when you should do it. Do not use public Wi-Fi unless you're using a VPN, a virtual private network, which is a steel tunnel through that environment. Don't leave Wi-Fi or Bluetooth on, specifically in hotel lobbies if you're not using it, or train stations or airports because you can be jacked that way. Make sure that you're using next-gen AV or, or mobile security on your devices when you are conducting business. And in fact, every device needs security on it, including Macs. It's a myth that Macs are no longer hackable. Uh, they are. Definitely do not click on links, especially links related to you putting in sensitive information. Those links should be cut and pasted into a browser, and not all browsers are equal. Uh, the most secure browser, I would compare it to a bulletproof suburban versus the motorcycle of most browsers, is Mozilla, i.e. Firefox. Uh, use that, particularly when you're doing sensitive transactions. I need to change some habits, I think. <laughs> Oh, one more thing. Oh, good. <laughs> if your security software says that you have something on your, if, if security software says you got something on your device, it's nasty, it's going to quarantine it or it's going to clean it, kill it, whatever. Cool. That's great. But guess what? That thing already stole all your passwords for everything. So after you clean it, kill it, quarantine it, whatever, you need to immediately, immediately change all your passwords. I got a question. It's kind of off topic, but you brought up the Apple security thing. So what do you think of Apple's new credit card? Um, <laughs> you know, I love how Silicon Valley is getting into the banking business. I personally would be concerned about narrow AI and, and its applicability to my buying habits compounded with the potential for compromise. But I would say that Apple Pay Apple Pay, which is not the card, obviously, is more secure than using your credit card because it creates a new credit card number every time you use it. Apple is doing great work in, with regard to security, but it's not bulletproof. I, I myself uh, use Apple, and, and but at the same time, I have security software on top of it. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I think that wraps it up for this episode. Thank you again, Tom, for speaking with us today. And what is the best way for our listeners to find you? Yeah, sure. Um, on Twitter, T.A. Kellerman, K-E-L-L-E-R-M-A-N-N. -N. And yes, I have to accept you because I get a lot of trolls. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you again, Tom. And uh, to the listeners that joined us, thank you for being part of the Spaces and Places podcast. Be sure to check out our past episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or on our website at site1001.com so you don't miss the next episode. Have a great day.